Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is Academy Award nominated composer Volker Bertelmann. He joins the show to talk about his latest score, which is for the German World War I movie, All Quiet on the Western Front, the remake or re-adaptation of the classic book. And it also happens to be Germany's entry into the Academy Awards for Best Foreign Picture. Now, while I really enjoyed the movie, Volker's score really caught my attention. It's certainly been one of the more divisive scores of the year, with a really jarring, at times, modern sound. Although it isn't actually modern music. As you'll find out, what I thought was this electronic, slightly industrial siren or wail is actually based in an early 1900s harmonium that his great-grandmother, I think, had. But it's one of those times where I watched the film, heard the music, and immediately thought, I need to find out more about this. And I'm glad I did. I really recommend giving that score a listen. And even if it's not really your style, check it out at least for the inventiveness of it. Of course, you can find out more about Volker on his website or various social media. And... If you're enjoying these interviews, jump on to your favorite podcast platform of choice and give me a rating, give me a review, all that. Now, my last interview, in the lead-up to it, I mentioned that this might be my last one for the year. Instead, I have one more interview coming on uh, Christmas Eve. I thought maybe y'all won't be listening on Christmas Day, so moving it up a day early. It was uh, a bit too good and too big to pass up. So after that, I'll be uh, taking a brief mid-season hiatus, let's call it, and come back uh, sometime in January. Keep your ears open. Until then, sit back, and I hope you enjoy. Volker, thank you so much for joining me today. How have you been? Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, it's pretty, it's starting to get cold here in Germany. We (laughs) we start starting getting winter. But besides that, uh, you know, I'm feeling very well and um, I'm in the middle of recording my new album. So I'm uh, that's always a good work because you are you're away from all the pictures and uh, you're just doing music without any uh, limitation, I would say. And uh, I, I really enjoy that. Can you tell us anything about what the album might sound like or what the approach is? Because I know you started off doing quite a bit of prepared piano work. Yeah, it's actually, I, I think the next record will be maybe in the tradition of my beginnings where I mm. started, um, where I was pretty deeply connected with electronic experimental music, let's say a lot of beat driven, uh, maybe here and there some techno elements in there. Um, even though I like the piano as well, unprepared and, um, you know, um, I like lyrical and very melancholic pieces. I rather have maybe one or two on an album and then uh, the rest is like uh, more weirder, weirder <laughs> things, uh, you know, where, where you can actually play in a club or in a kind of indie venue. Um, and I'm also, you know, not such a big fan of getting too big in terms of uh, places because even though I play in a lot of like philharmonic orchestra uh, places, I think for my music, it's always important that you have a very close relationship to your audience. I would rather play in a smaller venue two days or three days in a row 
than uh, one day in a very big place. Do you still play in, in smaller venues then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's varying between, uh, you know, big, big venues, but I also play in, in, in Germany specifically in certain areas. You know, the, the people are not, they are not traveling so much to see, see other shows, so they mainly mm -hmm. stay in their hometown. And the, the clubs there are much smaller, but I, I really love um, playing there. I, I remember it when I played in the U.S. I played in Boulder, Colorado, for example, um, which was also a very small venue, and it was so nice. Uh, the only thing is the oxygen was a little thin up there. <laughs> and uh, I, I, was, I was feeling already one uh, glass of beer so heavily that I had to uh, not drink anything before I'm, I went on stage. So... You know, these little venues, they have their charm and you also meet people on a different level. Now that's, that's absolutely true. There's an intimacy that you get in those small venues and, and I think mm. an energy that comes from it that is just impossible to replicate anywhere else. I, I know the, the most memorable and powerful shows I've ever gone to are ones where there's a couple hundred people maybe packed into a pretty small room. Yeah. I mean, when I played, uh, I think uh, I played once... Uh, It, the empty bottle with tortoise. Oh, really? And, uh, you know, yes. And I mean, that's uh, an experience in itself. You know, you know exactly what it is. I mean, two drummers uh, sitting right at the edge of the stage and, uh, you know, places like that. I mean, in Chicago, which was actually the first city I played in the U.S. Uh, in, um, I played in a, a very small gallery You know, on that evening, I met a lot of people that worked for the Chicago Public Radio. So we, uh, it was very nice for me because we, you know, I never knew if that will be a good experience. Uh, and it made me in the end stay one week in Chicago. And uh, I played another show that they then organized for me. And it was a very, very nice and welcoming scene and very experimental. So I would say Chicago is one of the places that very inspired me to continue and strengthen me in my approach because a lot of times you are in cities where uh, another approach is uh, strengthened uh, that you need to be glamorous and successful <laughs> and you know so um, it's it's very important that the craft the craft in a way works in itself and then everything else can fall in the right place i love that and it's It's funny, the empty bottle is maybe a mile and a half from my house. So yeah. you, know, you were right, uh, right down the street. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Now, at this point, you know, you, you've been doing solo records for 25, 30 years, scoring features for a, a decade or so. How much does each one in, inform the other? Well, they are uh, informing each other a hundred percent in a way because it's, uh, you know, every w work that I'm doing with music is helping the other uh, because you learn a lot. You learn a lot how, you know, if you work with other disciplines, let's say you, you write for a dance piece or you, you have a live performance with an actor who is reading, um, you do a podcast, you know, I'm just mentioning a couple of situations mm -hmm. I'm in regularly, uh, let's say in a year. Um, all these situations need a certain sensibility um, and you, you need to find your space and you need to find out what is artistically right and strong rather than 
just gluing it together with a kind of whatever, like just a pad of sound, something like that. You know, you need to find um, a structure or edges. It's a little bit like creating a sculpture and you, you start to find the right lines in the sculpture and then you go back home and then the next morning you go back and you're like, ah, the nose is not working or it looks too familiar. Let's make it different. So in a way to find the way of um, creating difference in your work and also challenges, I think that is informing each other very much. And specifically when you are always in your own bubble, um, it in a way is not helpful because it in a way keeps you always feeling like, yes, it's all working, it's great and I can do this. But at the same time, when your next record comes, you suddenly realize, oh, I'm doing exactly the same thing again and again and again. And I mean, every musician will tell you that, uh, let's say, the third album is the most difficult one. <laughs> the second one is, uh, is okay, because in a way, it, you have a little bit of space, but the third one, in a way, establishes your language and then if it's successful depending when the success is happening it's always difficult to go on a side road and leave your successful road and just find out something that is maybe as well successful but uh, it's not established now, did you ever run into that earlier on in your career where you weren't sure whether to keep staying on one road or one sound or to keep branching off doing different things experimenting yeah, I mean, I was uh, when I was in uh, in the middle of my twenties. I was uh, the founder, or the um, with my cousin, we we started a hip hop band, and I was uh, in a way writing the songs, and I was singing, and I was playing the keyboards. Uh, well, I had some keyboards that were remotely working for me while I was in front of the stage and stage diving and and stuff like that with with my cousin. He was rapping. And so, you know, we were we were signed to a big uh, major label, but at the same time, um, I had the feeling this is not my thing. I'm uh, in a way I'm entertaining something that is a kind of image of success, but it's not my way of having success because I I felt not really happy with it. Uh, a lot of the time, I was I was not with me. I was always. Uh, you know, longing for something. I was unfulfilled in a way. And uh, I was, and by finding, let's say, Hauschka and uh, making music with, you know, with my own instrument that I really could play very well. But I felt uh, the piano was always a little unattractive. And it was maybe nice for uh, romantic tunes for girls uh, when I was young, you know. But then at some point it was like, I mean, the classical pieces were great, but they were not reflecting the music that I was listening to um, and not the way of living that I'm living. So I felt always disconnected to that instrument, even though I could play it very well. So, you know, I'm, I went on Saturdays and Fridays into an indie club and I heard interesting, extremely interesting music created with laptops, with stomp boxes, with weird kind of technology. And uh, I was completely inspired. And then I came home and I sit on my piano and I was like, oh, um, yeah, Bling, 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 you know. So um, at some point that was not enough for me and I wanted to, in a way, create the same kind of music that was inspiring me on the piano and using it as a kind of sound box. And that's why I started to put material in there and I tried to create hi-hats on a C3 note or I, I tried to find a way of creating bass drums with a certain key so that when I play in that I could have all the whole orchestra 
on my fingertips um, mm. and uh, I could work freely. Interesting. And that seems like such an important part of music, both creating and listening, is finding those things that, that you connect with and that represent you. But over the years since then, has that connection remained? Or, or as you've gotten older as well, have you sought out different instruments or, or different connections as well? No, no. Well, I, I mean, I have uh, different connections to other instruments because I'm working with them much more regularly and um, I can think in other instruments in a way that I'm asking, let's say, a violinist, can you play uh, like this or, uh, you know, so I, I can describe what I want. Um, but the piano is always the, the instrument that helps me when I'm stuck or when I'm trying to find an, a, a melody or when I write a choir piece and I want to find the chord structure or when I want to, even when I play, let's say, a scene in a chase scene uh, of a thriller and, uh, you know, and I don't want to use the normal epic you know, the normal big drums and timpanis and stuff like that. Then I'm going to the piano, I EQ certain string notes, I put a gaffer tape roll on the strings just to find out if uh, it mm. could sound like a hi-hat um, or I'm using other material that I'm using because I can play the key, uh, there's an impulse on something so I can, I can use material on that certain location where the hammer hits the string. So um, I'm trying to find out ways uh, which also transfers then into let's say, working with cellists that are doing, in a way, things like that, that transform their cellos in uh, sound machines, or I'm working with a drummer uh, from the band Moom in Iceland. Well, not in Iceland, he lives in Finland, Samuli Kosminen. And he's, for example, a guy that works, in a way, on his drums, like I'm working on the piano. And, I mean, in Chicago, I saw many uh, guys working on drum kits with... Uh, with a lot of material, even people that where I felt when I saw them, I, they looked like my father or like, you know, where it just felt like that's, that's impossible that there are guys that are looking pretty ordinary and not like punks or like weird guys. They're just like, they come with a leather bag and open it up and then they have suddenly this, all this trash in there, <laughs> <you know? laughs> which I really loved in a way um, that it g gets this kind of normal attitude to be curious and mm. uh, to be interested, you know. And uh, in a lot of ways, people that are interested and curious are a lot of times stamped as weird or, uh, you know, insane or whatever. But in a way, it's a little bit like being a scientist because you are searching for an answer for a certain topic and uh, it's not about maybe the result it's actually the path because maybe the result is a completely different result than you were aiming for but you find that uh, whatever a recipe for soap or but, but you're you're <laughs> <laughs> you're actually uh, hunting for uh, like something else so in a way it's the same with me making music it's more about the way and the path moving is for me more important than you know, having trophies. Hmm. I appreciate that because I've, I've always been somewhat interested in the stranger things, um, not just music, but in the arts broadly. And I, I always think of what a utterly boring world this would be if all of the fringe, very creative, out there people all got stamped out. It'd be horrible. Yeah. 
Yeah. But you made a comment a little bit earlier about how in your solo work you can get a little more experimental and really push on that. What is it about working in film or TV that kind of curbs the experimentation? Well, I mean, in um, let's say, for example, a good example is All Quiet on the Western Front because um, it's a film where I was freely, very free in experimenting. Mm -hmm. There was no, well, there were five or six sentences that I exchanged with the director um, in the beginning where we just said, what do we want to do? And he said to me, I want to have something from you that you've never done. And then I said, okay, uh, thank you. (laughs) And I walked home. But while I was going home, I suddenly realized that it's very wise because he was just challenging me, trying to encourage me to find something that is in a way like a record, which I'm, you know, the same thing I'm doing on the record as well. I'm trying to challenge myself. I'm trying to find things. And it's not always the newest, like completely different. It's much more about what is the goal? Where do I feel excited about? You know, what is a a next step, for example? And so in this case, it was a very free process of working. But what is, of course, a limitation is the the collaboration. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's there's definitely one or two or three opinions. And that is very, uh, very good because I'm not the stone of the wisdom. I'm not like the person that uh, if I'm saying, uh, yeah, this is it. Eat it, you know. Then I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm not expecting that others are. Maybe there are ten different opinions, and they are all in a way okay. They, you know, there's there are different approaches, and whatever you, wherever you put the emphasis on, um, it might be a good approach or a bad approach. So the other limitation is some of the films that I've done so far. They have a lot of dialogue, mm-hmm. and in a lot of films. People want music over the dialogue where I'm feeling, you know, not always comfortable with. But it ne- it's sometimes needed to go into the, let's say you make a transition from one scene into the other. But you can't start just in the, in the little five seconds where nobody's talking. You have to start earlier. So you already are in the dialogue starting something. And you have to find a frequency, an instrument... You have to find the pace for the music that is not disturbing the language, which already gives you a limitation in terms of the, you know, the instrumentation. So you have to find things that are working with dialogue. And that's uh, definitely not, a, let's say, an oboe that is exactly playing in the same frequency as a language and very loud. Then you are, uh, you know, nobody can listen. These practical things are very interesting. I like them a lot. It's not like that I'm hating it. It's more like, can you make that work? Can you make it work, for example, to find a theme that is uh, going all over in all different scenes? For example, in All Quiet, again, I, I used a, like one tonal theme of three notes, but I was curious if that could work in all sorts of situations. So um, not only in the dark part, if I'm using it in a lighter part, if I can maybe write even a lyrical theme out of these three notes and make it work uh, so that it's not getting boring. So these are challenges that I really love. And um, I would say, you know, if I have enough time, I mostly can solve them. And that's especially talking about that three-note theme in, in All Quiet is, is something that really struck me, given your initial comment, because it's such an utterly surprising theme, given the film. Mm. 
mm-hmm. know, it's it's this really monolithic electronic kind of like a, a warning or siren sound. And hearing it in a film set in World War I and you know, 1917 or so, I, I think the, the typical viewer or listener is expecting something that's going to be more classical or orchestral or something that's going to fit in the, the sound that we associate with that time. Mm-hmm. And so then hearing those, the first time those three notes come, you're like very pushed back because it's so unexpected. Now, with with that said, I mean, was there ever a time where, when you're working on the film, that there was pushback on it or it was going too far might be too jarring? Or did that exactly fit the bill for, for the director, Edward Berger's mm. directions to you in the very beginning? Well, it was actually the very first thing that I sent him and nothing really? else. Yeah, nothing else. I just, uh, I mean, I, we, we had this, this screening and... Uh, he was like, um, you know, I want to have something from you that I haven't heard from you. And, uh, you know, we talked about a few scenes and we talked about the dimension that the music has, which is of obviously there is some alarming music that is not underlining the, the horror in itself. It's just more like the horror comes, mm-hmm. the horror comes in a way. And at the same time, there is this kind of home that these boys are losing I mean, with their naivety uh, that they had at that time, because they were not forced to be to go to the front, they could have stayed at home. But they were just lifting their fingers and saying, "Hey, I want to be uh, a part of it," which is completely, uh, completely stupid, you know. But at that time, it was maybe the you know people felt in their that age, this is the thing to do. So they went there. But once they were there, they lost everything. I mean, they lost their sense of, of positivity, they lo- lost their families, um, nobody was taking care. Uh, they were just going up the stairs and they were, got shot and they died. They get uh, the clothes undressed, they were sent back for the next round of soldiers. So in a way, to describe that process, uh, th- that was for me very important, that there's something like this light, this warmth from home that is still somehow glowing and that everybody wishes to get back and so I try to use that theme to also compose these things but to answer your question in terms of the instrumentation the instruments funny enough from my grand-grandmother from the time from 1900 so when I came back from Berlin and I was I was seeing the film I said I want to use an instrument from that time but I want to use it in a way that I can also be modern that I'm not forced into this orchestration thing because once you're in it you can't get out the scale is set in a way and so I came home and I had this refurbished uh, harmonium in my studio that was already tuned to 440 and it was in complete good shape I never used it and so I had the feeling that this might be a great one because my grandmother was you know living at that time and it was used in our home as a or in their home to accompany Bach chorals and, mm. uh, you know, Christian songs when families were gathering or at, at evenings there was no TV, there was no radio, well, radio wasn't even there. So, uh, I mean, what do people do? They, they read and they have their fire going and they talk and they sing. So they were mostly singing. And so this instrument, I remember that it had a very massive bass because it was combining octaves with each other so you could play one note and it added an octave lower Mm. to it 
So I use that and I put that in an amplifier, a Marshall kind of stack. <laughs> <laughs> and I played it and, you know, and then I recorded it and I sent it over to Edward because, and that's maybe why you are asking, I was thinking when I have done it, I, I said to myself, I feel very comfortable with it, but I need uh, first Edward's go because if I'm getting comfortable and he doesn't like it, I'm in trouble because yeah. I don't know what I could do else. I was really in a kind of situation where I felt this is actually what I want to do, you know, which I not always have. I have sometimes uh, I'm sending something out and I'm like, yeah, it's okay. But then I somebody else says, but have you tried this? No, but I will try it. But in this case, uh, it was very clear that I want to do it that way. So I sent it to him. And the first day I haven't heard back and I was like, oh man, this, <laughs> this is not working. And the next morning he called me and he was sitting, I think, with his family uh, in the living room. And he said, we're sitting here and we're listening to your theme. It sounds like Led Zeppelin. And I was <laughs> like, okay, what does that mean? And he said, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. We really love it. It's the, exactly the right thing. And I said, okay, good. Well, then let's put it in there. It's so interesting because from me and from other people that I've seen talk about it, it's not at all what they expect and mm. nor is the instrumentation. I think I think people are going to be very surprised to hear that that's actually how it was created. Mm -hmm. But given that and your conversation with Edward, this is your, I think, fifth collaboration with him. Mm -hmm. How has that working relationship changed over the years? And at this point, do you feel like you have more confidence in what you're sending him is going to be something that he's already going to like? Or is it still always up near when you send something over, especially on those uh, initial pieces? I would say there's a very nice natural tension, hmm. but not a tension in a way that it says you have to deliver. The tension is more like, what do you think? Should we do it? What do you think about that? Or... How do you feel about a choir only sung by whatever? Just throwing ideas at you, which of course, when you get used to scoring films, you see when somebody proposes something, you already sense the work in the proposal. So when somebody says, why don't we have a choir from a very seldom group of people that are living in the north of uh, Greenland that are only singing this kind of music, then you're like, okay, well, I know <laughs> what that means. I have to go there or I have to find people. But at the same time, it's a challenge of maybe finding you know, something that you've never heard before or that uh, where you find something that is very unique and you can work with people that are doing different music. So I think inspiration is not easy. Whenever things are easy to you, you always have to be skeptical because uh, then things are very comfortable. And I would say you're doing things on your left leg rather than on both. Then with Edward, you know, we share a lot of interest in uh, modern art and in paintings and going to museums and, you know, things that are beyond, I would say, music. Mm. Uh, we really like abstract art and they're not obvious, maybe. That is not always, let's say, the first thing to go. And I think he might be as well skeptical when he thinks like, yeah, I mean, this is what we have to do. And then you're like, oh, wait a second. Yeah, that is what we would do normally, but we want to do something differently. And how can we approach that? And that it doesn't have to be always 
the opposite. It's more about how you approach, let's say you want to have a romantic scene. Of course you want to have romantic music. It's, uh, it's totally senseless to play something that goes against the romantic feeling. But how can I approach a romantic feeling without overwhelming the scene or without feeling cheesy or kitschy or, you know, and finding the kind of se sensitivity um, for that topic, for example. And sometimes it's just like you put a piece of paper between the strings of your guitar and you play exactly the same tune that is normally cheesy, but with a piece of paper between the strings, suddenly it becomes a kind of somebody who has a broken guitar that plays a song, and uh, which maybe sounds a little bit like Johnny Lee Hooker playing a blues song on the step of his uh, house, you know, which is very charming and very heartfelt and very, very warm. And I think that's what I can discuss with Edward very much. Interesting. How often then does that sort of physical instrumental exploration take place when you're trying to find the right sounds for a film or for a scene. It's always happening. I'm always, in a way, I'm, I'm even trying to find instruments. Sometimes I'm buying, uh, let's say, low string instruments of all kinds of sorts because I'm, and that doesn't mean expensive ones. It means like going to the flea market, going mm -hmm. to an instrument place, searching for a bass sitter or like looking for you know, let's say an instrument where you feel like, is that existing? For example, recently I was looking for a bass, Nickel Harper, and uh, I was not sure if that exists. But then I found a guy that lives very close to Düsseldorf that builds these humongous Nickel Harpers that are, you know, I mean, he's half time in Sweden, half times here. So I, I called him and I said, um, can you come and bring your Nickel Harper here <laughs> because I want to try, I want to find out, I want to learn more about it. So he, he came here, uh, Holger is his name, and he's a, he's a wonderful person. He's from a completely different musical background than me. I mean, you maybe if I would see him in a concert, I would think, you know, maybe he plays sometimes on medieval markets, you know, where you have a, a complete different setting <laughs> where when you, when you see him, you feel like, oh, I don't know if I can have him in a chase scene of a thriller. You know, but then when you when you when he was here and he plays fantastically and he's extremely uh, interested in experimenting and uh, so we had a wonderful time. The exploration of either of somebody who plays an instrument well and who's willing to explore with you, or you buy an instrument and uh, you use your own fingers and sometimes you know the you don't need to play it very well. It's just you just press one finger on one string and then you bang uh, whatever a mallet. On the string and you record it very closely and that's it you know i even did one film where i just did all the the drums on my table i mean here really? where where i'm sitting like my, my <laughs> desk i just put contact mics on on the table and i i was always wanting to have one like knocking like a like a talk but a talk that it doesn't sound like a talk on a door or a talk on a wood so i found this i was knocking on my table and I was like oh this is exactly what I'm looking for so I put a contact mic on the table and a few mics around my finger and I was just beating uh, the talk on my, uh, my desk <laughs> so you know it's sometimes so obvious simple but you always think that you need a humongous installation of um, which you of course need every now and then you need to right. record a full organ and uh, of course a full orchestra and uh, let's say 15 trombones that bring like uh, you know a humongous pressure on into the microphone so that's also important 
it's always exciting to hear that sort of thing as the listener, as the viewer, to have your your ears pushed in new directions and hearing sounds that you're not sure about, you're not familiar with, that you you sort of wonder where did those come from? Mm-hmm. You know, I I talked with Ben Lovett not too long ago, who scored the new Hellraiser movie, and that was I know that was a big thing for him was just also doing unexpected, unorthodox, stranger things to get sounds and it time and again confuses the audience in oh, yeah. in a good way i think getting them yeah. curious as well mm-hmm. but how much of that is just the natural way that you approach music and how much of it is sort of a a drive to keep yourself doing things differently and not ever being stuck in the same rut where you look back and you've had five albums or five scores that are all pretty similar? Well, I think my natural uh, approach is research. I'm a searcher. I'm a person that always is running around and, and, and searching for things. And when I like them, I collect them. And then I put them in a shelf and every now and then I take them out. But I'm not the one that is storing five things and I'm repeating them over and over mm. again. You know, because I think both things have to exist, coexist. I mean, you have to be sure that what you're doing is a part of your identity. It's not like a show off of, hey, I have a box of tricks or I want to surprise people in the film. So I'm actually surprising it, the audience by tricking them. Mm-hmm. It has to come naturally out of your approach of um, working on something that is uh, like hours and hours and hours go into the research process of finding one interesting sound. And if you have that one sound, suddenly the whole box of sounds are opening up. But to get into that box, it needs sometimes quite some uh, patience and, uh, you know, some frustration uh, in a way. And the inf- frustration span has to be very high because uh, you know it's a lot of failures in there and even the failures can be interesting and you store them but you're you're, you see them like maybe at some point you're like uh it's not you know it's a failure i can't use it but maybe later on and sometimes i'm using failures of earlier scores in newer scores because suddenly i look at them differently than when i did the the failure so it's it's things that are, um, the process is important. And while you're processing, you find out the things that are strong. The only thing is you need to have confidence in presenting them. Because if you are keeping, holding back on the very strong things that you feel are strong, but then you have on the other side a party that is constantly telling you, uh, what are you doing? I mean, we want to have a, a score like Born Identity, or we want to have a... John Williams score and you're like you're experimenting with a drum sound on your desk I mean that's uh, <laughs> that is exactly the the uh, the fear that you have when you present things like that because of course they are maybe challenging or they are like it needs some trust mm. that you are not at the end in the mixing room and you're missing let's say the pressure of a full of a hundred musicians chasing the person, the main actor through a scene with our music, you know, and you are just working with a little tiny ball pen on your desk and like, and you're doing like tick, 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 you know, which sometimes works fantastically uh, when it's really empty and you hear all the, the soundscape and you hear just one instrument singly chasing 
it depends also on the dynamic level that you want to have all over the film. So if you start already with a very high level right from the beginning, I mean, what can you do at the end? You can actually mm -hmm. throw everything in, everything you have to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, it's actually you know, dynamic is a very interesting musical element because when you are not starting with a reduced approach, you always end up in too full sound with mm. soundscape and everything. So I think reducing things is very important. Now, it, it sounds like obviously every musician, every composer's approach to making music is different, but it sounds like the process alone of the experimentation, the exploration of finding these sounds is not just useful for you in the final creation, but also in developing you as a as a musician or as a composer and expanding the sounds that you know that you can work with. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you recommend to other composers, especially those younger ones who are still developing their own sound and their their world of sound? Well, it's a recommendation out of my experience. I mean, there's definitely uh, hundreds and hundreds of other composers that maybe recommend mm. their approach as the one that they experience as uh, great. What I can say for myself, and um, that's maybe speaking to specifically younger composers that are in a way fan of electronic music or you know like modern let's say indie music in a way which can be done with you know not only electronic uh, instruments right. it can be done with cello it can be done with violin uh, i am very happy that this effect of electronic experimentation actually goes and was always in other in jazz it was already in a lot of instruments happening but in uh, I would say in the pop world or in the indie world it was not always there was maybe in the crowd rock time uh, with Ken mm -hmm. and right. you know in in the area where I'm living here in Düsseldorf that was Düsseldorf and Cologne were were in the 70s a very strong part of crowd rock so in a way there was a lot of experimentation with sound but then suddenly we came into the 80s and 90s and suddenly pop was very arranged and focused on melody and uh, I would say the experimentation approach I think the last record that I bought at that time was a slave to the rhythm uh, from Grace Jones yes Grace mm. Jones and uh, Trevor Horn did uh, like a, a remix album uh, of the one song of uh, slave to the rhythm and I felt this was extremely interesting because there was so ex there were so many experiments I later heard a little bit about the process from people that were working on it, and uh, I, I, of course, there was a, there was quite a nasty process of creating a lot of a lot of you know uh, takes, and a lot of people came in and they played, and you know, but in the end, it was for me like an approach that stuck with me because I had the feeling it's very nice that there's an openness to the format. So I would say if somebody's you know attached to that, I think it's a good way of having the option of not always using melody. Mm -hmm. So if you are experimenting with sound, you can always actually lose the melody, but there's still music because I personally think that sound is music. Uh, and for some people, sound is not music. They, they think that it's, it has to be a composed arrangement. But I think both worlds, like John Cage in a way, uh, I would say yeah. you can sit on a street crossing and you can hear music 
without hearing a single note, but you hear rhythms and you hear people talking that is a rhythm in itself. Uh, you hear a drum that is, uh, or a dram that is passing by over the uh, train rails, uh, you know, and it does like, and then you hear like somebody honking and this whole world that we are living in, if you're just standing still and you're just waiting and listening and think in a musical term, a lot of times there's music out there in a very interesting way. And if you go back and you try to recreate what you heard with instruments, then suddenly you get a very interesting approach because the things are maybe not rhythmically attached to each other, but altogether they build a kind of construction that is very interesting. And I think that is something that for me sound is. Sound can help create uh, different approaches than you normally would tonally work with because your ear is already in yeah after this chord i have to do that but i can also right. replace that with this so it's a little bit like a, a formula that sound can break open and suddenly you only start with two chords and then you uh, you never play the third one hmm. because there's still a, a texture underneath that you know that continues so yeah. in a way that can help you to to um, get out of cliches for example I find that very interesting. So I'm I'm with you that both sound and textures and melody are all music, but mm. it's interesting hearing about what it can accomplish from the composing perspective and push music in different ways, avoid those cliches. I mean, I've I'm sure you have and most people have heard so many times where you're partway through hearing a melody and mm. you start you know, maybe consciously or subconsciously predicting how it's going to resolve itself or the next notes are going to be because that's what makes sense. And then sure enough, that's what happens. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but sometimes you're right. It can also just fall into a, a cliche or predictability that maybe is fitting or maybe is something that you want to avoid. Mm -hmm. But while there are people that push back on the infiltration of sound and texture into film music mm -hmm. i think there's also a lot more films and studios and directors that are increasingly open to that approach especially mm -hmm. in some more mainstream films so it's been very nice hearing both melodically thematic films uh, or mm -hmm. scores coming out but also those pieces that are soundscapes or have droning textures or something much more experimental and unexpected too. Mm -hmm. Has that been something that you've noticed both, you know, as an outside observer and a composer working in film that, like we talked about with All, with All Quiet, there was a, a huge amount of discretion for you to make the sounds and pick the palette. Is mm -hmm. that something that you've, you've noticed change over the years? Yeah, there's definitely a bigger, a wider sense of um, being willing to have, let's say, stripped back sounds uh, or st stripped back scores in a way, not so overwhelmingly loud mm. and, and big. At the same time, I feel also the sense for guys like me that are coming more from a band background that are willingly deciding for just having a cello score or... You know, just using a, a real instrument and writing for it and uh, 
like Bryce Dessner or John, Johnny Greenwood, like guys like that who are in a way trying to compose in a different way. And you can sense that uh, the way how they compose is very interesting and uh, it makes the work in total of film scores much wider. Or like Hildur uh, Gudnatodir, mm -hmm. I played with her a lot of times. We have a record together and we I opened for Moom for her band when she was playing there a lot of times and I could you can sense when you hear her scores now that there's a lot of from her solo work and how she approaches her instrument is in the score and that gives in a way the film world as well the feeling okay you can be a protagonist as well it's not you don't have to serve constantly the film if you are strong let's say in your output and um, I, w I would say uh, the same is for composer like John Williams I'm, I mean yeah. I think from the first note you feel like he's doing exactly what he wants to do he's a person in there and there is no um, can you actually take all the strings out and uh, just play it on a different on a synthesizer <laughs> or something like that you know so in a way um, it, it's more about the personality and, and what you are getting asked for and me personally I don't I love being challenged by doing things that I haven't done before so in a way if I'm always doing a prepared piano on, in a score uh, I would die you know because uh, then I would I would sit at the piano and I would throw things in, like somehow in the piano and say yeah it's prepared <laughs> <laughs> it's enough you know But because I'm uh, I'm working uh, on one score with a harmonium, on the next score I'm working with weird synthesizers, on the next score I'm trying to find, um, you know, working with a quartet, uh, or I'm writing pieces only for string instruments. And then the next one is maybe a little bit like a blockbuster with full-on orchestra, but to have actually the fun with writing and being excited and how you want to approach it and that's already for me a gift and all the rest if i'm failing okay there will be another one and i try <laughs> I, i will try again uh, you know i mean you, there's also a difference as you know in failing for yourself and yeah. in failing in front of others so a lot of times i think i could do better but others are thinking it's already fantastic you know and i'm like oh, i don't know well i think that's As long as you're not being too hard on yourself, speaking, you know, you isn't the, the broad everybody. I think that's the mindset you need when you're making anything creatively. That, yeah, maybe it was good, but I think there's more I could put into it. I could do better. The next one can be better. Because I think that that always is is pushing you to improve and to, to try new things, yeah. which I think is, is integral because otherwise, like you said, you'll be looking back in 10 years having done the same thing, not pushed yourself and been like, yeah. what happened? No, and then you could always stand, you could always make a video of yourself standing in a kind of glitter and you're like the best of, uh, you know, uh, I mean, that doesn't <laughs> make sense at all. It's a... Uh, I mean, I'm learning. I'm actually in a in a long learn learning curve of getting challenged, and um, sometimes I don't know. I mean, sometimes I'm sitting in front of a film, and I have. I mean, I said yes, and I have no idea how I will pull that off. Sometimes I'm writing like all quiet. I'm writing things very quickly, and it uh, all falls in the right place. Mm. So it's not no project, no film is and also my records nothing no work is always the same challenging yourself 
and making learning from mistakes or let's say for example the string sound on one re record or on one film was not exactly the right thing then you have to figure out what can you change you know and then um, at the same time what is always helpful is to have a production line that always works because timing wise it's sometimes very important that you can rely on people that you work with and that they're who are very good where you can always say oh i can do that with those guys i call them up and they say yes of course let's do it you know it needs all these kind of little stones in your um you know in your palate that help you to survive this whole thing in a way that you are happy and that that you are satisfied i would say that you're satisfied with the work and with what you've done and um you know you can go home and you can just eat a sandwich with your family and you're like <laughs> hey, it's good, rather than uh, being grumpy and uh, yelling at everyone. And with how intensive the process can be, and I think often is, that that sounds like an integral aspect of not just making sure that the music that you're coming out with is good, but also that preserves you as a person, rather than, like you said, being grumpy or being overwhelmed or burnt out. But given the darkness and bleakness of All Quiet, It's been nice to have something a bit more hopeful or optimistic in these last few words. So I mm -hmm. think those those words of wisdom I'll uh, I'll let rest with everybody and mm -hmm. and uh, let you go on your way. But once again, I really do appreciate you jumping on the chat. It was it was great talking with you and honestly a really really interesting striking score that when I watched the film about ten minutes in, it's like. I need to know more about this. So yeah. I'm glad you could come on and, and answer some of my questions and, and sate my curiosity a bit. Well, thank you so much. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm very thankful that you invited me. Specifically, you're coming from Chicago, which is... A <laughs> <laughs> well, and if, if you ever end up playing The Empty Bottle again, I'll, I'll be right there. Please, please come. <laughs>